0: You're listening to A Parish Podcast, a reimagined faith community. Last Friday was the Feast of Epiphany, the 12th day of Christmas. It's a feast that does not involve 12 drummers drumming, despite what the tune running through your head might suggest. The Feast of Epiphany commemorates the visit of the Magi to the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. The word epiphany has since then migrated into modern language, but I fear that we use it in a less liturgical sense. I've just had an epiphany about why there are never any crackers in the house. My husband gets up at 3 a.m. and eats them all. As you might expect, epiphany in the church calendar is a bit more meaningful than an explanation for missing crackers. The Magi had an epiphany when their detailed calculations led them to identify a new star and interpret its meaning as indicating the birth of a new king of the Jews. It's the kind of epiphany that might lead a researcher to cry out, Eureka! But as important as that discovery by the Magi was, And as impressive as their interpretation of it was, the real epiphany, the one for which the feast is named, happened some weeks or months later. And it didn't happen in the observatory tower of their palace, but in a humble home in Bethlehem. In the Eastern Church, the term theophany is used rather than epiphany. Theophany means more than the observation of a novel appearance, It means the appearance of God. In this case, God in the form of a humble baby in the home of poor peasants in Palestine. The shepherds who attended in the stable on the night of the birth also had a theophany. But this theophany, the epiphany to the wise men, carried more significance than just ensuring there were a few more witnesses to the Incarnation. It was uniquely significant because it was the revelation of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, to the Gentiles. The angel on Christmas night told the shepherds that he was announcing good news that would be of great joy to all peoples. And the visit of the Magi is the first tangible evidence of that, that this long-awaited Messiah would have a larger sphere of concern than some Jews living in Palestine under Roman occupation. And so the Feast of Epiphany is a signal to us that this is a much bigger salvation. Let's unpack the story a bit. Here's how Matthew records it. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea at the time when Herod was king, some wise and learned men came to Jerusalem from the east. Where is the one, they asked, who has been born to be king of the Jews? We have seen his star rising in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was very disturbed, and the whole of Jerusalem was as well. He called together all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired from them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, that's what it says in the prophet. You, Bethlehem, in Judah's land, are not the least of Judah's princes. From out of you will come the ruler who will shepherd Israel, my people." Then Herod called the wise men to him in secret. He found out from them precisely when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem. Off you go, he said, and make a thorough search for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can come and worship him too. When they heard what the king said, they set off. There was the star, the one they had seen rising in the east, going ahead of them. It went and stood still over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were beside themselves with joy and excitement. They went into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him presents, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they returned to their own country by a different route. Who were these magi, the central characters in this story? Aaron and I joked a few weeks ago about inaccurate Christmas carols, We Three Kings being a classic, classic example. There is no indication they were kings, nor that there were three of them, only that there were three different kinds of gifts. There may have been two or a dozen of them and while the carol describes them as being from the Orient, it's highly unlikely that they came from the East Asian countries we associate with that term. And if you were paying attention, you would have noticed that Matthew doesn't mention a single camel, despite the ubiquity of those animals in nativity scenes. Finally, most narratives have the magi following the star all the way to Bethlehem. When in fact the star was in the East, and they were traveling west, though the star does of course reappear after they leave Jerusalem. Getting back to the Magi, Magi is a term that encompasses a lot of roles that we would think of as distinct in a modern world that forces us into specialization. But as recently as 600 years ago, the notion of a renaissance person was idealized, someone who could create music, poetry, visual arts, who could design great architecture and understand the mathematics and science behind it. A polymath. The magi would have fit that model. They were skilled as sages, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, and sorcerers. So perhaps we should not see it as remarkable that the same folks who studied the stars with such rigor were also sufficiently versed in the history and politics of foreign countries to determine the meaning of the star, that this unusual celestial event they had observed could be ascribed to the birth of a Judean king. Given the breadth of their expertise, they were perhaps uniquely positioned to receive that portent of a royal birth. But were they the obvious recipients for a messianic announcement? Wouldn't the Essenes have been a more appropriate choice? The Essenes were a sect of Judaism that withdrew into a monastic community in the desert in the 2nd century B.C., They produced documents that would be discovered two millennia later as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were devout students of the Hebrew scriptures and were earnestly anticipating the coming Messiah. Their contemplative stance should have left them receptive to a divine announcement, and they would have known all of the context, the background to the story. And yet God doesn't send the message to them. No, the message comes not to the devout insiders, but to the outsiders, to Gentiles, to foreigners, to uncircumcised heathens, to men whose practices may well have included sorcery and activity forbidden in the Jewish law. What was God thinking? Revealing the incarnation to the Magi may not have been the obvious choice, but it made an obvious statement that this birth, this theophany, would be good news for all people, not just Jewish people living in Palestine. And so the Magi make their way to Jerusalem and start to look for this newborn king. Matthew tells us that when King Herod heard this, he was very disturbed and the whole of Jerusalem was as well. One of the few things worse than living under the rule of a tyrannical despot is living under the rule of a paranoid tyrannical despot who has just received disturbing news. It's clear why news of a child-born king would be upsetting to the guy currently on the throne, and it may be that all of Jerusalem was nervous simply because an agitated King Herod could do unpredictable and terrible things. But there may be another reason why all of Jerusalem was upset, at least all of the prominent elites, the people whom the wealthy magi might have questioned about this newborn king. Imagine that you're one of them, and you hold a high religious position. Life is pretty great for you. You're powerful, wealthy, and highly esteemed. People honor you in the streets, and you get invited to all the best parties how would the arrival of a messiah affect you? Probably not well. If said messiah gained widespread honor and fame, your honor and fame would be diminished. And if said messiah were to lead a band of poorly armed Jews into a violent rebellion against the invincible Roman army, it would certainly be unsuccessful and would pull down on their heads even more oppression. Now the religious authorities were unlikely to be delighted by the news of a would-be Messiah. If they were, wouldn't they have insisted on coming along to Bethlehem? Ironically, 30 years later, it would be another King Herod and another chief priest who would conspire together to get Jesus crucified, events that are foreshadowed here at his birth. And so our Magi finally head off to Bethlehem, And to their great delight, the star has reappeared and leads them right to the house where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are living. I find this a lovely picture of our seeking after God and finding God, but only because God is first seeking us. The Magi applied insight and great determination in their quest after the miraculous baby. Yet their Quest is triggered not by themselves, but by a novel star, and their journey is completed, not because of their own effort and ingenuity, but because the star reappears, offering light to draw them home to God's self. Matthew practically trips over himself in trying to articulate how the Magi felt when they arrived at the house he says, they rejoiced exceedingly with boundless joy. Some translations give they were beside themselves with joy and excitement, or they could hardly contain themselves. If this were just an ordinary obligatory visit to acknowledge a new head of state, that isn't what we would anticipate. At the coronation of King Charles in May, we expect pomp and circumstance, but hardly ecstatic delight. What was it that triggered such a strong emotional response in these affluent sages? I, of course, don't know for sure, but I suspect it was awe. These were men who had spent countless hours studying the night sky. Much of that would have been objective observation, but they couldn't help but have been awed by the immensity the sense of the transcendent, the vastness of infinity, as they counted stars beyond number. And now they were encountering the transcendent in a humble peasant home. They had found awe. Decker Keltner is a psychologist at UC Berkeley who has studied the physiologic roots of feelings of awe or wonder and the impact they have on our well-being. He says, Awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding of the world. Experiencing awe comes from what Dr. Keltner has called a perceived vastness, as well as something that challenges us to rethink our previously held ideas. Awe can be triggered by experiences like seeing a lunar eclipse or witnessing an act of altruism. He argues that awe in our lives is not limited to rare moments of serendipity, but we can intentionally seek after it through activities like walks in nature, dancing or creating music collectively, or participating in ceremony. And when we do, those moments of awe improve our psychological well-being. There was one aspect of Dr. Keltner's work that I found particularly interesting. I might have anticipated that for those of us who struggle with low self-esteem, an encounter with the vast or the transcendent would only make us feel smaller. But he observed the opposite. Awe seems to quiet the critical voice in our head telling us we're not smart, beautiful, thin, or rich enough. It actually dials back the connections in the brain that generate negative self-perceptions. For a moment, we get to be lost in the transcendent, rather than trapped in our negative narrative. Another author has defined awe as the absence of self-preoccupation. It's the time of year for lots of self-improvement articles to be appearing in the media. I get a bit suspicious of prescriptions to adopt emotions that we aren't feeling, like advice to a person suffering depression to just think happy thoughts. Similarly, I don't think we should try and manufacture awe. But we can put ourselves in a place where we are more likely to experience it. And that doesn't mean we need to make a pilgrimage to Bethlehem or travel to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. We don't even need to hike through Jackson Creek Park, although that would also be great. We just need to be present to God. We need to worship, especially corporate worship, but also worship in our own prayers. We need to open ourselves to the infinite God who became present to us in Jesus and rediscover the awesomeness of that reality. We need to worship. Some of you know that I follow European football. As I watch games, I'm occasionally bemused to see what a church replacement the football stadium has become. Corporate worship, not of God, but of the athletic gods on the field. Regular attendance, corporate singing, sometimes dancing, fellowship in a shared passion. As humans, it seems we are wired up to worship. I used to get a bit twitchy about all, the, all of the directives in scripture to worship God. Like, is God a narcissist who needs constant affirmation? But now I'm seeing that worship is for our benefit. It's an invitation to encounter the transcendent and have our minds, our thinking, reshaped by it. Contemporary society offers lots of opportunities to encounter what it sells to us as awesome, an overused word if there ever was one. But like the Magi, we need to be careful not to get distracted by the powerful, famous, and influential. Like those sages, we need to make our way to the little town of Bethlehem because our thirst for awe We'll only ever really be satisfied when we encounter that humble baby who is God incarnate.